Thank you for listening to my podcast, American Writers, 100 Pages at a Time. This is the second episode on Herman Melville's first novel, Type For new listeners, this is a podcast focused on reading American writers systematically, using the Library of America as a guide. I'm starting with Volume 1, and I'm going to work my way through the series, although not uh, in order. If you're just tuning into this episode, you are encouraged to go back and listen to the previous episode covering the earlier section of Type between chapters 12 and 16 of Taipei, Melville continues to tell the story of Tomo's suffering. He safely escaped his ship and made it to the lands of other people who appeared willing to help him and his companion Toby. However, he remains in pain from an injured leg, possibly made worse from the treatments of the Taipei physicians. He is also fearful that the Taipei, although hospitable, are cannibals and will someday eat them. He spends most of this of his period in of this period of his venture in the home of his appointed servant, Cory Cory. Tomo needs to be moved around on Cory's Cory's back due to his injured leg. Tomo and Toby are shown a building where the major religious rituals take place called the tea. Here they are served a meal that Toby is convinced is a human child. Tomo later discovers that it is in fact just pork. Tomo later dis- discloses that the Taipei are indeed cannibals, but only targeting their enemies during war with this gruesome ritual. Once again, the reader is reminded of the immense pleasure Tomo and we presume Melville get from watching the women of the island. One of Tomo's favorite pastimes during his time on the island is watching the women bathe. We'll come back to how we can understand this issue later in the podcast. Alongside Tomo's recovery and the anxieties about being eaten, another major tension in these central chapters has to do with Toby's desire to leave the island. The first attempt at this comes with Toby's volunteering to return to Nukuhiva, which is the main settlement that has the most contact with the West, in order to look for medicine from the French. He returns within hours after having been attacked by the Hapars, a neighboring village. This is the group at war with the Taipei. And this only heightens the duo's anxiety because there seems to be no hope for escape. Quote, This incident threw a dark cloud over our prospects. It reminded us that we were hemmed in by hostile tribes whose territories we could not hope to pass on our route to Nukahiva without encountering the effects of their savage resentment. Here is an ongoing theme in the book. No matter how friendly the Taipei are, Tomu and Toby are never able to fully trust them. Is this Melville pointing out that the racial differences really cannot be bridged? Or is he suggesting that this is a false assumption that has been propped up by mistrust and eventually the empire? Toby gets another chance to leave when French ships visit the Bay of the Taipei. Toby is allowed to visit the French ships to get medicine and aid, and Toby privately tells Tomo that he will use the opportunity to secure their escape. He does not return, however. Tomo has his first major conversation with the beautiful Feiwe. They discuss Toby. Internally, Tomo feels greatly disappointed and even betrayed, ironically mentioning how he has been deserted by Toby, even though Toby and Tomo had deserted a ship in the early pages of the novel. The Taipei confirmed this feeling, denouncing Toby as an ungrateful runaway who has deserted his friend and taken himself off to the vile and detestable place, Nukuhiva. The next chapter, chapter 15, presents a shift in the tone and in the purpose of the novel. Tomu takes on the role of an ethnographer, documenting various aspects of Taipei society and culture. He is never able to study them objectively, he is quite openly, and often unnecessarily, comparing the Taipei with Europeans. 
but it seems that this is Melville's point in the novel. Without taking the unrealistic step of having Tomu go native and fully embrace the Taipei way of life, Melville's able to paint a contrast as much to question and critique American life as it does to document the Taipei. For this reason, it is possible that the entire debate over how fictional Taipei is and how much Tomu's observations conform with Melville's experiences might be missing the point. Melville is always pointing four fingers back at Europe when he points one at the Taipei. It is worth noting that these sections are not entirely ethnographic, as Tomu describes the experiences that teach him about Taipei life. This is a useful plot device that allows Melville to engage in a long discussion about a radically different culture without entirely stopping the story. The first of these ethnographic discussions explores the food of the Taipei, which is based on breadfruit. Now, a wide variety of preparations could be made from this one staple crop. It's a starchy food that seems to meet the dietary needs of the residents of the island. Tomu also describes the process of turning this breadfruit into poi poi, which is a kind of white paste. The advantage of this form of the breadfruit is that it can be preserved for a relatively long period of time. It is at this moment when Tomu starts to learn more about Taipei society and begins to adapt himself to their ways of life as his heel start, leg, leg starts to heal. It is possible that Toby's presence in a, and his constant doubts about the Taipei infected not only Tomu's mind, but his leg. And as he becomes more comfortable with the island, his leg seems to improve. More rumors of ship lighten Tomo's mood because he thinks that Toby has returned with aid as well as a means of escape. Tomo is convinced that the Taipei want to keep him in their valley because Mahevia, the chief, refuses to let him visit the arriving ships. During this, he speaks of the increasing pain in his leg. Two important things happen at this point. One is that Tomo abandons his European clothing and begins to dress like a Taipei. He does this ostensibly to preserve his clothing for when he can effect his escape. He uses his sewing skills, which is an important talent any 19th century sailor would have, to fix his clothing to be more modest than that which the typical Taipei would wear. Now this cross-dressing strategy and, 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 and theme will be used later on in Omu in uh, Melville's next novel, but there will be used more directly to fit into the native society. The second important thing at this point is that he shaves the head of a Taipei warrior, Narmina. Narmena? Narmone. Narmone. Although Tomo does a poor job, his labors and his instrument, a razor, is well appreciated. Now with this, Tomo's leg begins to heal enough that he can start to move around the valley without the aid of his assistant, Kori Kori. And he reaches some internal peace, saying, I began to experience an elasticity of mind which placed me beyond the reach of those dismal forebodings to which I had so lately been a prey. Now with the leg crisis gone, Tomu is free to engage in a long polemic about civilization. I see no good reason not to assume that Tomo's words are thinly veiled introductions to Melville's own opinion. So let me just read a little bit of the text. As I extended by wandering in the valley and grew more familiar with the habits of its inhabitants, I was fain to confess that despite the advantages of his condition, the Polynesian savage, surrounded by all the luxurious provisions of nature, enjoyed an infinitely happier, though certainly less intellectual existence than the self-complacent European. The naked wretch who shivers beneath the bleak skies and starves among the inhospitable wilds of Tierra de Fuego may indeed be made happier by civilization, 
for it would alleviate his physical wants. But the voluptuous Indian, with every desire supplied, whom Providence has bountifully provided with all of the sources of pure and natural enjoyment, and from where are removed so many of the physical ills and pains of life, that what has he to desire at the hands of civilization? She may cultivate his mind, may elevate his thoughts. These, I believe, are the established phrases. But will he be happier? Let the once smiling and populous Hawaiian islands, with their now diseased, starving, and dying natives, answer the question. The missionaries may seek to disguise the matter as they will, but the facts are incontrovertible. And the devoutest Christian who visits the island with an unbiased mind must go away mournfully asking, Alas, are these the fruits of 25 years of enlightening? And now a little bit more. In a primitive state of society, the enjoyments of life, though few and, and simple, are spread over a great extent and are unalloyed. But civilization, for every advantage she imparts, holds a hundred evils in reserve. The heart burnings, the jealousies, the social rivalries, the family dissensions, and the thousand self-inflicted discomforts of refined life, which make up in units the swelling aggregate of human misery, are unknown among these unsophisticated people. End of the quote. So this argument is simply that living a life as a primitive is happier, that European contact has made life worse, and more generally, perhaps Europeans have something to learn about freedom from the islanders. I couldn't help but think about Mark Twain's claim that we all have something to learn about freedom from children when I read that. At the center of his admiration for the Taipei is that they do not have money, and no professionals who are charged with defending, accumulating, or managing such money. In short, there's no bankers, no lawyers, and therefore no beggars and no debts. He goes further, suggesting that the Taipei enjoyed a near ludic lifestyle. All was mirth fun and high good humor, he says. If anyone wants to read one sample chapter to understand Melville's argument in Taipei, they could do worse than reading chapter 17. Not accidentally, it stands at the physical center of the text. The chapter ends with Tomu being altered to the firing of, alerted to the firing of shots as the Taipei fight a skirmish with the Hapar. So not all is ideal in paradise after all. The next chapter begins with another titillating scene of Tomu enjoying time with the women of the island. He uses this opportunity to narrate his feelings on the taboo, which prevents women from using boats, forcing them to swim. Tomu is able to convince Mahavi to allow him and Feiwe to ride together on a canoe, breaking this taboo. Tomu gives Feiwe a gift of a dress made of calico, which she changes into right then and there on the boat, to Tomo's delight, and to the readers, I suppose. Later, Tomo is introduced to another character, Marnu. Marnu is an outsider of the village, but popular and attracts attention of the village when he arrives. Tomo praises his physical form. His admiration of the islanders is doubtless bisexual. Again, this is another theme that will come up strongly in uh, Omu. His tattoos and his ability to seduce the crowd with his oratory is also attractive to, to the islanders. Tomo later learns that he served on a British ship and even lived in Australia, allowing him to pick up the language, English language. Tomu was able to discuss with him the political situation, even trying to learn why the Taipei were so interested in keeping him around. Marnu is evasive, though. The first person in the valley who speaks his language is not able to give him the information he needs to secure his escape. When the Taipei learn of his interest in Marnu and the reasons why uh, Tomu is so interested in Marnu, they managed to convince Marnu to stop talking to, to our hero. 
When this event passes, Tomu again takes on the role of the primitive ethnographer. Melville not only spent time in the Marquesas, he studied what he could about the Pacific his, his, his histories and missionary accounts and books like that. He even cites some of this research in the novel directly, making note of William Ellis's Polynesian researchers, which was one of the major sources by a missionary about the uh, South Pacific at the time, available in English. How much of these observations are fictional and based on his experiences or based on his, uh, on his own study um, will need to, be a, need to be answered by someone uh, who's a more diligent student than myself. We learn something about the children as Tomu makes pop guns for them, creating hours of amusement for the village. The process of making cloth from tapa bark is also described in length. He goes on to detail about the leisurely cycle of the day in the Taipei Valley, including moonlight dances by the girls. These ethnographic musings reach their ultimate in Tomo's observation of what he calls the Feast of the Calabashes. Here we reach the obvious limit of Tomo's powers as an ethnographer. He cannot explain to the reader the purpose of this festival. He effortlessly documents the food, the events, the dress of their participants, which includes all the people in the valley. And he gets bits and pieces of information from Cory Cory. Quote, In vain I question Cory Cory and the others of the, of the natives as to the meaning of these strange things that was going on. All their explanations were conveyed in such a mass of outlandish ingestulations that I, had, that I, that I gave up the attempt in despair. End quote. So he's able to get maybe some information, not really much that's useful. This veil is not lifted. Tomo gives up on trying to make sense of the festival. He gives the example of a scientific expedition that collects the material culture of some indigenous islanders. He then quickly gets to work on analyzing this culture. He chooses to give everything a heavy meaning. He makes up for his ignorance by writing down his theories in a jargon-filled text. But if he is really so ignorant of the facts, why does he presume to give thick religious meanings to the ceremonies and items he picked up? Why does he not just assume that they are playthings, or that the ceremonies are just for fun or for joy? Is it, even it is even impossible for the hard-headed Americans to imagine an entire population having fun without any clear religious purpose? After these musings, Tomu concludes, quote, They are either too lazy or too sensible to worry themselves about abstract points of religious belief. Later, he describes a religious site where the Taipei did have, but notice that the idols there were in serious state of decays. And while Tomu ponders that they need a religious revival, I'm not sure Melville agrees. He has already shown that religion is not required for communal celebrations. Well, we'll finish up with Taipei in the next episode. I'll also wrap up with a general review and a list of the important tropes of American literature that appear in this work. So thanks for listening. Please leave your comments, rate, and subscribe this podcast. And we are just getting started. I look forward to hearing about your own ideas and your own experiences with these writers. Thanks for listening. Whenever you tell me I'm pretty, that's when hunger really hits me. Your little heart goes pitter-patter. I want you to live on a platter.